Today, I want you to open your mind, open your mind to the possibility that one day we will make contact with an intelligent civilization in outer space. Vortex is basically an enhanced energy site that the soul can soar on. They're, they're extra-dimensional beings that an earlier precursor of the, um, the space program made contact with. Do you believe are we alone in the life after death? listening to the Vera Normal Show. And tonight we are going to talk about alien conspiracy theories. But before we get into that, I want to remind you guys our line is open. So if you have any comments or questions throughout the show, give us a call. Our number is 619-639-4606. Again, the number is 619-639-4606. Also, our chat is up and running, so log into LifeGrownormal.com and join the community chat. This is your host, Vera Martinez, and your co-host, Martha Mann. How are you there, Martha Mann? How are you? I'm here. Good. How are you doing? Good. If I understand right, you have, you found a really special guest for us tonight. Yes, we got a great guest tonight. Um... We have nuclear physicist and author of various UFO books, um, Mr. Stanton Friedman. And um, he's actually, uh, he's written some books like Crash at Corona, the definitive uh, study of the Roswell incident, and uh, Top Secret Magic. And he's also, I mean, he's lectured at over 600 colleges, 100 professional groups, 50 states, 10 Canadian provinces, provinces and uh, 18 other countries. So this is going to be really good tonight. Why don't we? Say, why, why don't you throw a couple um, way but true events that you find? I know you found a lot of interesting things in the last couple of weeks. That yeah, I put like five ones together. I figured our last ones were kind of dark, so I decided to have them a little lighthearted this time. Weird, but true. This is interesting. Um, out of Long Island, New York. A lady went and uh, blew a lot of money at the Atlantic City Casino, and so her son, um, you know, she went and bought a whole bunch of uh, scratch, uh, some scratch lotto tickets, and the son said, um, I'll tell you what, Ma, if there's a God or a Jesus up there, I'm asking him, please let my mother win. Sure enough, the next day, she won a million dollars. Whoa, that's crazy. So she's going to be receiving $33,000 a year for the next 20 years, so How much? I think How that much? might have... $33,000 a year after taxes for the next 20 years. But um, I guess that pretty much restored oh, her son's <laughs> <laughs> Oh, hey. well. I'll take 33 a year for free. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's... Um, I'm not going to get into religion right now. Just go on. Yeah, who knows about that. But... Um, well, a funny one, a man in Maine, um, he has been wanted for uh, several uh, fines that he hasn't paid. And so he was 
actually out in his yard the other day. 29-year-old James Green was um, using a backpack leaf blower, and he was just uh, blowing leaves in his yard, and his phone called 911 in his pocket. So, so police traced what? the call and came over and arrested him. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. He was betrayed by his own butt. That's too funny. Yeah, exactly. So well, he got I mean, out of all the numbers, job. out of all the numbers that it could have dialed, dial you dial nine one one. So we are nine one one and then send. So it sent it too. Karma, baby, karma. That is karma. Maybe he was bad to his phone. I don't know. <laughs> okay, I got like just a few more for me to cover them real quick. Yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, there is. Uh, in Austin, New York, um, about, about in the 19th century, there was a man known as um, the Leatherman. Leatherman, and he wore a 60-pound leather suit and walked 365 miles in a, in a radius of 365 miles, just constantly every day. He was walking like 10 miles a day, and he was he was French. He didn't speak hardly any English, and but he was just walking around. I guess he would smoke like a 10 pipe. And there's also stories about how if um, little kids left pennies on their door, like rusty pennies for him, he would always exchange mm-hmm. them back in for brand new pennies, sparkly, shiny pennies. Mm-hmm. So um, basically people would feed him, and he would live in caves, he would live on the side of the street, but he always went back to the same people. They said every, like, 33 days he would show up, and you'd give him some food, and he'd just keep going. So he actually was found, uh, he passed away, you know, in, like, the late 1800s in, in a cave, and they buried him. And recently, they um, there's a highway, Route 9, that's built right by his grave, and it's getting really congested. They decided to, to move his grave, and they went and they dug it up to move it. And when they looked inside the coffin, all they found was 12 coffin uh, nails. Nobody. What? Yeah, so it sounds like Leatherman is still walking around. No way. Is that what you think? He's still, he's still alive? He's still going? No one's saying that, but it's just like a weird, you know, you know, anomaly. Like what, uh, you know? And apparently, when he died, there was a, it was a big deal. A lot of people went to his funeral, and so they just uh-huh. went and put him in another um, coffin. And they said a lot of people went there and um, and showed up for the funeral. But it's funny because, um, I mean, he Pearl Jam even wrote a song about him like ten years ago. Mm. And uh, mm. yeah, so it's. It's pretty interesting. He caught a lot of attention. But what do you what do you um, think? Is he was he? I mean, I don't know. You think he was maybe alien or? God, I don't know. I mean, I can't imagine somebody walking around in a sixty pound head to toe leather outfit now, let alone in the eighteen hundreds, right? <laughs> I don't know. That's pretty weird. Oh, somebody from the future that was time traveling and got lost. Seriously, who knows? But um. Maybe some creepy person just stole his body, his dead body. I think he may have had, like, an autism, you know? May not have just been all there. But, I mean, he's definitely mm. not, I mean, walking around a 60-pound weather outfit, you're definitely not trying to be too discreet. You're going for some kind of attention. Right. Hmm. Um, and I'll save one more story in case we want to talk about this later. But I would like to also end and just let you know that um, a guy in Fond du Lac, uh, Wisconsin, 57-year-old Don Gorsk, just ate his 25,000 Big Mac. It took him 39 years. 
Ew. Like a, like a Big Mac, the hamburger? Yeah, it's weird, and it's true. Uh, he, he basically, uh, he's, he's like a man of, like, math. He's, like, in a very crazy routine. So every Monday he buys six Big Macs, and, like, the next day, mm-hmm. on Tuesday, he buys, like, eight, and he freezes them, and he just microwaves them every day. He said he's only missed, like, one, or, one day in the past 39 years, and that was because of, like, oh. his mother's, like, dying witch. I don't know. I wonder, mm-mm. I would love to run a blood test on this person. Check out his cholesterol and all that. No, he's in perfect health, low cholesterol. They say it's just probably his genetics. That's a scam. I don't buy it. But anyway. Yeah. Moving on. I just figured I'd drop that one to end it. So there's a little weird but true for you. Thank you very much. That was pretty interesting. For now, let's go take a quick break, and we'll be right back, right on the subject or of um, alien conspiracy theories. We'll be right back with you guys. Are you there, Marco Man? I am here. All right. I'm clicking buttons like crazy. Little Ninja, my DJ happens to be out of state, so I'm kind of improvising, and he's um, guiding me from long distance. So bear with us, everybody. Um, tonight we, we, are, have a we are broadcasting, guest. aren't we? Yeah, I think we are. Just go for it. Um, tonight we do have a very, very special guest. And I'm really, really excited. Even though I'm not an expert on, on the subject, I'm very green in this area. And especially because I have to say I'm a little intimidated by this by this topic. But I'm going to let you go ahead and introduce our guest. Okay. Is, uh, do we have one on the line? Go for it. All right. We are introducing Mr. Stanton Friedman. I just gave you a little rundown on his profile, but we're happy to have him here. Are you there, sir? Yes, I am. All right. Hi. Hi. Are we connected? Yes, yeah, we are. It's going to be a slight delay. All right. All right. Well, basically, I was just about to start uh, maybe just talking about the Roswell incident in uh, July of 47 real quick. But, uh, yeah, is that something you would want to uh, uh, tell our viewers about, Uh, just the incident as as a whole? Well, yes, sure. I'm the original civilian investigator of the Roswell incident. Uh, And the people didn't come running to me, and there weren't any unnamed people involved. Uh, I found out about it because I was at a television station in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, supposed to do three interviews before doing a lecture at Louisiana State University that night. And uh, I did the first two. The third reporter was nowhere to be found. This was back in 1978. Okay. And the station manager's giving me coffee. He's looking at his watch. He's embarrassed because he wanted to do the interview, but he knew the person who brought me to the station knew I had other things to do. And out of the blue, he says, uh, you know, the guy you ought to talk to is Jesse Marcel. And being the brilliant investigator I am, I said, who's he? (laughs) He handled, his next sentence changed my life. He said, 
he handled wreckage or one of those flying saucers you're interested in. My lecture that night was flying saucers are real. Uh, when he was, was in the, the military. He was the one in the photo that, that had to take the fall for, and had to hold the uh, the weather balloon picture. Well, yeah. Yeah, he was the intelligence officer for the most elite military group in the world, the 509th. They're the group that dropped the atomic bombs on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, dropped two more during Operation Crossroads. So these are top-notch people, hand-picked officers, hand-picked men, all high security clearances. I found this out later, of course. I said, well, what do you know about him? I mean, after I picked my teeth up from the floor, and <laughs> he said, oh, he's a great guy. We're old ham radio buddies. You ought to give him a call. He lives in Homa. I had no idea where Homa, Louisiana was. I've been there since to talk to Jesse. But uh, the reporter showed up. I was busy the rest of the day. Uh, great response that night. So the next morning from the airport, I had a few minutes, and I thought, what the heck? Everything went so well yesterday. Let me see if I can find this Jesse Marcel in Homa. And I called information and got a number, and I called him and mentioned the station manager's name, and yes, he knew who that was, and gave him some background about myself, nuclear physicist, worked on all kinds of government-sponsored research and development programs, uh, little companies like GE, GM, Westinghouse, et cetera, and uh, he told me his story, and I should stress, Jesse was one of the few people that could not possibly deny his involvement because his picture was in many newspapers, his name was in even more. So, uh, you know, he couldn't say, oh, I don't know anything about that. Well, <laughs> the, the newspapers put that to the line. Anyway, he well, told me his story. How open was he to, to, to tell the story when you first got to him? How open was he to, to tell it after all this time? How what was he? How open was he to actually the thought of actually speaking well, he about was, it? he was pretty open by this time. This was, uh, you know, it happened in 47. This is 78. So 30 years later, uh, the big shots were almost all dead. Uh, and the story had lots of publicity at the time, just not the details. And he was prevented from saying anything more. He was instructed not to after the first go-around. So he told me the story. didn't have an exact date. He was based in Roswell, and he was the intelligence officer. And I heard another story at another lecture uh, a few months later, and then I shared it with a guy named Bill Moore. We knew each other from Pittsburgh. And uh, he had a third story, an English actor, while driving across the country from L.A. to Philadelphia, heard on the radio about a crashed saucer in New Mexico. And... Uh, we could find out when that was, early July 1947. 47. So Bill went to the he went to the University of Minnesota Library. That's where he lived, and uh, that's where my second story came from. And there was the story. Early July gave us other names, and we started work. And in the next year and a half, we found 62 people in conjunction with what happened at Roswell. And all the same, something did happen. Oh, there's no question something happened, and we also found many other articles besides the ones Bill found originally. Uh, and the first story was Army Captured Flying Saucer on Ranch in New Mexico. And, and that, uh, I just want to ask you, that, that actually got printed in the paper the next day, didn't it? Well, it got printed on July 8th. The rancher had come into town on uh, Sunday, 
the 6th, they followed him back to his ranch. He brought some wreckage with him, and it was the strangest stuff. And Jesse told me there wasn't anything normal, conventional. Uh, they had to follow him out to the ranch because no way to tell anybody how to get there. It wasn't on a road or anything. They stayed overnight in their sleeping bags, and the next day he takes them out to the debris field. Uh, and here's this area, three-quarters of a mile long, a uh, few hundred feet wide, and it's covered with pieces, small pieces of mostly foil-like materials, some Bakelite-like pieces, some I-beam-like pieces that were extraordinarily lightweight and extraordinarily strong. You couldn't cut them, couldn't burn them. The foil, mm -hmm. you could fold and fold and fold, and then it would unfold Open on its up. own, but you couldn't tear it. Uh, so it was weird stuff, and he told his boss, Colonel Blanchard, and he said, take one of our counterintelligence corps guys with you and follow the rancher back. Because the rancher had said, hey, there's a whole field of this stuff, and my sheep won't cross it, and somebody's got to clean up the mess. That's what he was worried about. So they go out there following the rancher, stayed overnight, saw this area the next day, and Jesse figured had to be a meteor explosion because there was no crater. When airplanes go in, they can make a big hole in the ground. Uh, and it was spread over such a large area. So they brought some of it back uh, late uh, that night. Jesse stopped at home, showed some this stuff. Family. Wife, mm -hmm. son. And uh, his son is still alive. Jesse is long gone, of course. And his son is only a medical doctor, Junior. a pilot. A flight sur surgeon, yes, Jesse Marcel Jr., great guy. Would you believe he got called back into the military, had more than 30 years' time, but he got called back in at age 68 he to be did? a flight wow. surgeon in, in Iraq. He flew 225 combat hours. So he's a medical doctor, a flight surgeon, a helicopter pilot, uh, a super guy, and he's relevant to the discussion about this Annie Jacobson strange book because she doesn't yeah. mention Dr. Marcel, and uh, he had served on aircraft accident investigative teams, and there was nothing that was conventional. He repeated that, what his father had said. And so to say that uh, what this was was a cockamamie, uh, combination of Joe Stalin convincing Joseph Mengele, the yeah. Let me let me mention doctor. that real quick before you go on. Um, basically, for for you know our listeners out there, this lady Annie Jacobson just just recently came out with a book called Area 51: An Uncensored History of America's Top Secret Military Base. Yeah. And she's I mean one of the I mean it's not all about Roswell. It's about, about a lot of things of Area 51 and what was going on inside, but. One of her theories is like what you were about to say, sir, is that you know two of the greatest villains of the 20th century, you know Joseph Stalin and the infamous uh, Nazi angel of death, Doctor Joseph. How do you say his name? Mangela. Mangela? I don't know. <laughs> Something like that. But her theory is, in short, is that um, Stalin had wanted to do what Orson Welles did on the radio back in 1938 when he scared everybody with, with the war of the worlds thing. And he basically, I say that the doctor had experimented on prisoners, and he made like to try to create a crew of grotesque, like childlike aviators. And they went, they wanted to crash this. Uh, 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 well, basically, these people had like these little kids had a like flying wing. Had, that's right, that's right. He wanted to crash it in like a big city, from what I understand, right? But it ended up crashing it in, in Roswell. 
Well, not in Roswell, uh, out in the middle of nowhere. I've been out there, closer to Corona than Roswell. And the notion that this would start a panic, I mean, the key thing about War of the Worlds is that, A, people thought they were hearing a live reporter describing terrible things happening in New Jersey, no less, the most heavily populated area of the United States, the New York, New Jersey area, and the reporter was describing how there were these alien spaceships and they landed and they were destroying, killing people and destroying buildings. And wow, you know, and so naturally people panicked because if it was true, they might have missed that beginning one minute where they said this is only, a, you know, a story. If it was true, you had a reason to panic. What could we do? This is before the space program here. What could we do against Martians, you know? And I don't know why they said Martians. I guess that was the likely place. And, uh, uh, you know, so there was a panic, if you will, not as bad as some people say. But the, the parallel is minimal, to say the least, because Annie seems to want not to deal with the eyewitness testimony of the people who were there. Her whole story comes from an anonymous source, who supposedly right, and he's like the only outed. anonymous person in the book, too, of course. Yeah. For that one yeah, particular and of course, subject. He told her what was told to him was this crazy story about uh, this this hoax. And th- there's nothing to make it sound plausible. She even says that he said that there were Cyrillic letters, Russian letters, on a ring inside this uh, craft. Now, if if Stalin was trying to think get the Americans to think this was an alien invasion. Did he think none of them could read Russian? I mean, how ridiculous. <laughs> what know? was your first reaction when you heard this theory? Uh, well, you know, I had talked to her about a year ago. She talked to me. Uh, she doesn't mention my books, of course, but and she does mention several debunking books, but uh, I was shocked. Uh, and when I, as I started to read on the Internet before I got the book, uh, I, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I've been out there. I've been at the crash site, and I've also been near Area 51. And Area 51 didn't exist in 1947. Now, she says it was called that because it was started in 1951. Nobody else connected with this uh, believes that. 1955, 1956. It was set up, Area 51 was uh, ostensibly set up for a particular purpose. It was to developed the U-2 aircraft, basically, so it could fly over the Soviet Union. It would fly higher and farther than... It was like 90,000 miles in the air, something like that? Well, 90,000 feet. Uh, Yeah, yeah. 90,000 feet, sorry. It was subsonic, but... uh, So it was... the, The whole point about Area 51 is it's out in the middle of nowhere in Nevada. There's no people living right there. It's quite a ways from uh, Las Vegas, and if you're going to test a crazy-looking airplane, you better test it away from people. Now, this is before the space program, so you didn't have to worry at the moment, at least, about somebody spying from above and wondering, what the heck is that, you know? Uh, <laughs> but it was sent – she says that they took this uh, crazy uh, Horton Brothers flying wing, which was made out of wood, incidentally, uh, and had a couple jet engines on it, which couldn't possibly have reached New Mexico from any place outside the country, that they 
this was taken to uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in July 1947, and then four years later was shipped out to this mythical Area 51, which didn't exist at the time. Now, the notion that the people at Wright-Patterson, where Wright Air Development Center was, couldn't figure out a German craft made out of wood is absurd. They had some very good engineers and scientists there, and as a matter of fact, uh, they'd gone over to Germany right after the war was over, which was in May of '45, uh, and brought back literally tons of paper from German research and development programs and all their advanced aeronautics technology. They had it translated. It saved this people of estimated $50 million in research work. But the notion that nice. they couldn't, uh, you know, figure out what was going on with something from Germany is in four years, mind you, is ridiculous. And I, uh, I also heard that, and this is this makes no sense to me, is that is that the pilot, uh, the, the the aircraft itself with the kids in it or whatever, no one was flying it there. It was being remotely piloted from another aircraft. I mean, do we even have that kind of technology back then? No. No, we didn't. And, you know, where would it be from? And how could it, no matter who's flying it, how does it get the range that the, the – uh, a flying wing did not have that kind of range. Remember, Hitler wasn't interested in going long distances to bomb people. He had England right next door, practically, and France, you know, uh, and Russia when he turned on them. Uh, he didn't need to worry. It's not like the United States, which had to cross an ocean, you know, which is quite a different problem. Jet engines, the jet aircraft didn't have long range then, but you didn't need them in Europe or even Japan. So, you know, it, it really makes no sense, and it's kind of incredible. She, For example, the, the kind of simple-minded error she makes, she says that uh, the first press release was brought to the local radio station by Walter Hout, uh, the base public information officer. Well, that's true, but then she says three hours later he brought the new press release in because now the story was just a radar reflector weather balloon combination. Well, that second story didn't come out of Roswell. It came out of Fort Worth, Texas, from General <laughs> Ramey's office. And he was Colonel Blanchard. Colonel Blanchard was uh, Hout's boss. Uh, he was a colonel then. He went on to be a four-star general, incidentally, and vice chief of staff of the Air Force. So, again, he wasn't a dink. You know, he wasn't somebody that was untrustworthy and, you know, making up stories and whatever. And uh, she doesn't mention... Uh, General Ramey, he was the head of the 8th Air Force to whom Blanchard uh, uh, reported. Also, there's a picture that went all over the world, I mean literally, uh, that shows General Ramey and Colonel DuBose and some phony wreckage that was substituted for the real stuff that was brought over to Fort Worth, Texas. Right. And Jesse Marcel is in some of those pictures. That's what I meant. That he, you know, he couldn't say. Uh, is that also the picture where they're crouched down and, you, and they actually could soup, uh, like uh, zoom in and actually pull off some words off of what he was holding on his piece of paper? Well, yeah. Uh, one of the pictures, there were two pictures with that piece of paper in it. It's a folded over piece of paper, and in one of them, it's the blank side is shown uh, toward the camera, and the other one. Because it was taken with a speed graphic, with a 4x5 negative, with very high resolution, 
with today's uh, software, I had scans made of the original negative, which is sitting there in uh, Arlington, Texas, the University of Texas, Arlington. The newspaper, Fort Worth Star-Telegram, had uh, given their negatives to the uh, University of Texas, Arlington there. Uh, it cost me 500 bucks to have the darn thing scanned. Half of that was to babysit it so we could be sure of the custody of it. But anyway, gotcha. if you look at the picture with that greatly enlarged, and you can see there are words there. Now, the Air Force says, oh, we showed it to an agency, presumably the CIA, uh, and they couldn't read anything on it. Well, anybody looking at that close-up says, hey, what do you mean you can't read anything? Now, the, the piece of paper is uh, bent a little bit the way he's holding it. but And it says, like, flying discs and stuff like that. Flying well, discs. and victims of the wreck. How do you like that? Right. Now? All all balloons have victims. Why did it go into the paper um, as it as it, as an alien you know spacecraft had crashed? It and didn't then the say next day, alien. Now now it didn't say okay, alien. Okay. It said flying saucer, flying disc. The big noise had begun two weeks earlier with Kenneth Arnold's famous sightings on June twenty fourth. And I think it was a bait-and-switch kind of thing, because Walter Pout put it out at the specific instruction of his boss, Colonel Blanchard. But Blanchard had already talked to his boss, General Ramey, over in Texas. So they apparently uh, put together a scheme, well, put it out, and then we'll get rid of it, you know. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, what do I call it, flying saucer fever, if you will, around the country because there were hundreds of sightings in that two-week period. In that time. Uh, why, so, why did the military you know, prevent gave the a, story from getting out and then change it within a day? Well, I, I don't know why, and uh, we'll never know why, except that we know that the rancher had talked to some people. So they and then couldn't duck it. quiet afterwards after two, right? Like they told him Oh, he yeah, he was... He was he was told to shut up afterwards, and there is general thinking that he one of the reasons he had gone into town with the wreckage, he hadn't heard anything about flying saucers. He looked out in the boonies, no electricity, no radio, no water, you know, out, out in the country. But he went into Corona on the fifth of July, and the people there, he had heard uh, an explosion a few nights before, and had found this wreckage, and was concerned because the sheep wouldn't cross the debris field. They needed to get to water. So he's complaining in Corona at the general store, and that's when everybody said, hey, haven't you heard? No. Uh, there are these flying saucers, and they're offering a reward for recovery of them. Well, the reward sounded like a good idea, and they said, why don't you go in the sheriff's office? So that's why he went in on, on Sunday the 6th. Uh, yeah, he got he was himself a out of the deal, right? Well, we don't know what he got out of it. I don't think it was a tractor, but it may be a truck. <laughs> uh, remember, he That's wasn't a farmer. He was a rancher. Uh, rancher. Ranchers are different from farmers, especially in New Mexico. Yeah, I, I do have a question. Hold on. I have, a, I have a quick question. There's a lot of theories in regards to Roswell. In your own opinion, which one is the best or the closest theory to what really happened? Well, I think what happened was an alien spacecraft was recovered and the military covered it up. Understandably, this is two years after the war. 
What are you going to say to the world? I mean, we're just getting ready to start the Marshall Plan to feed Europe, which was starving. Remember, we destroyed we earthlings. I'm presuming you're both earthlings. I have no guarantee of that, but it sounds good. Uh, We earthlings had killed 50 million of our own kind during World War II. We had destroyed 1,700 cities. Things were in, in a bad shape. The American government, Remember, this was in New Mexico. That's where the first atom bomb was tested. That's where most of the work, Los Alamos, Sandia Corporation, was done on bombs. High security kind of stuff. We could hardly say, oh, we thought you'd like to know there's some aliens visiting here. We don't know what they want, how they operate, where they're from, whether they're working with anybody here. Remember, little guys, maybe they're working with the Chinese. (laughs) One time in my life when I felt tall was being in Hong Kong at a a market where everybody else was short. <laughs> yeah. So they, they had to find out more uh, about what was going on. The Cold War was already starting, so it wasn't like the world was, everybody was friendly and good. Uh, there were problems. And uh, you, you could, so you can understand that. Now they'd have to admit they've been lying all this time. And people say, well, why would they cover it up? Why don't they just tell us? Well, let me give you six good reasons for all governments to want to cover it up, what's going on okay. with saucers. Okay, that was going to be my next to, question. <laughs> well, first you want to figure out how the darn things work. They make wonderful weapons delivery and defense systems. They can fly circles literally around anything we got flying, right-angle turns, hovering, straight up, straight down, take off in a space not much bigger than themselves. Everybody would love a system like that. We have rockets. You set up your secret project. Rule number one for security, and I worked under security for 14 years, is you can't tell your friends without telling your enemies because they read the newspapers too and listen to the radio. Second problem, the other side of the same coin, what if the other guy figures out how they work before we do? How do we defend against them? We don't want them to know. We know. They know. You know, weapon, counterweapon, counter, counterweapon. We've been playing this game a long time. Bigger spears, stronger shields. It's an old story. The third problem is, okay, suppose two highly trusted individuals around the world were to make an announcement. I mean, it's a little hard to find such people, but I like the Queen and the Pope, an odd couple. (laughs) They're about the same age. (laughs) What if they were to make an announcement saying that uh, uh, aliens are visiting Earth? What would happen? Church attendance would go up. Mental hospital admissions would go up. Stock market would certainly go down because uncertainty is always the enemy of the market. But I think one of the big things that would happen would be that the younger generation, and I've given over 600 college lectures, uh, the the younger generation, which was never alive when there wasn't a space program, unlike old guys like me, would push for a new view of ourselves instead of as Americans, Chinese, Greeks, Peruvians, whatever, Canadians. I live in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, a great place. But... Uh, the younger generation would say, hey, we're all really earthlings, aren't we? Because from an alien viewpoint, we certainly are. Now, no government on this planet of which I'm aware wants its citizens to owe their primary allegiance to the planet instead of that individual country. Oh, I see. Right. Nationalism is the only game in town. Now, there's a fourth Mm. problem. Uh, Pat Robertson says that we are the only intelligent life in the universe. Uh, what an insult to the notion of a supreme being, 
this is the best she can do? I mean, come on. Yeah, you know, I agree. I agree with uh, that one with you. He, he says sure. it's all the uh, the work of the devil, this UFO. I know. Um, the, so, the fifth reason is uh, if they're coming here and we're not going there, that means they're more advanced than we are. That means there's going to be new technology, and there goes the oil industry, the car industry, the plane industry, the computer industry, communications business, and that's economic chaos. And finally, the sixth reason is I have heard of seven instances in which planes were sent up to chase UFOs and never came back. As a matter of fact, orders were given in 1952 to shoot them down if they don't land when instructed to do so. And an Air Force general said there had been over 300 scrambles like that. Um, really? Yeah. And as a matter of fact, uh, people say, well, come on, they tell the families what happened to their sons, brothers, fathers, whatever. Well, no. There's a book, By Any Means Necessary, by a guy named William Burroughs, which talks about 166 military crew members of reconnaissance planes that were tickling uh, the radar, that's what they called the dashing straight into the radar at North Korea, Russia, and China. This is back in the 40s and 50s. And uh, uh, a bunch of planes got shot down. Because sometimes we violated that little 12-mile rule, you know, stuff like that. And there was radio mm-hmm. communication, and uh, these guys bailed out, and many of them were taken prisoner, tortured, whatever. The families were never told until 2001 when they had a big meeting, brought them all in, gave them the medals their sons or brothers, whatever, had earned. And that's when they first, the first time that they found out what happened to their sons. So if you're going to keep back stuff like that, then, you know, you're not going to say, oh, your son went up and his plane got zapped by a UFO while he was trying to shoot down the UFO. You don't mind, do you? <laughs> wow, that's heavy. So, you know, I heard any incidents. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna mention real quick that I heard that the first time. I listened to a video clip from Mr. William Cooper, and he he mentioned that that the the um the air force was actually ordered to to shoot down these UFOs. Yeah, 1952, and as a matter of fact, if you go to the book Shoot Them Down by Frank Faschino Jr. about the events of 1952, I wrote the foreword, he uh, lists 200 fatal military plane crashes between 51 and 56, and the New York Times used words like disintegrated and disappeared. And five of the pilots were guys who had over 100 missions in Korea when the MiGs were trying to shoot them down, survived that, and came back and crashed. Had a fatal oh, wow. Some of these, some of these uh, planes actually did vanish. Like, no wreckage was found. They were just gone. That's right. That's right. Wow. No so, it, okay. you know, it's a little so, scary, but what the heck? It That's is why. scary. But, okay, if these entire aliens situation is real, the government actually knows about it, therefore men in black are real as well? Well, it depends what you mean by uh, men in black. If you mean guys who come around and threaten people, I have a few stories like that, not a lot. Uh, There have been military people who have uh, threatened witnesses, and certainly guys in the service were told to shut up, and one of the things about Roswell that's scary, frankly, uh, 
This yeah. is 1947, remember, is that uh, there were people told there, the sheriff, the sheriff's wife told her granddaughter, long after the sheriff was gone, the granddaughter was living with her for a while while she was going to college. They watched a program on television, and the grandma says, you know, we've never talked about it, Barbara, but the reason your grandfather didn't rerun for sheriff was that when that saucer crashed, the military told him, if you ever talk about what you saw, we will kill you and we will kill your family. And the Barbara's horrified. Did you believe them? Oh. Barbara, I was there. Yes, I believed them. And there are other stories like that, but uh, I've talked to Barbara, and uh, it's believable because intimidation was a way of life back then. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, national security and all this stuff. And, you know, there are implications, like I say. if uh, What is the church going to say? Uh, for example. Now, the Pope has come around a couple of years ago. He said, uh, there's no reason that uh, our brethren in outer space uh, can't be out there. Uh, no problem with that. And some people were shocked at that. And I was one of them thinking, what does he know that the rest of us don't know? <laughs> right. Maybe okay, that's in the your first opinion, step. Yeah, in your opinion, what are these aliens? I mean, what do they want? Well, in my book, Flying Saucers and Science, and all my books are listed at my website, www.stantonfriedman.com, I give about 20 reasons for coming here. You know, they're broadcasters, a weekly show, Idiocy in the Boondocks. It's the honeymoon capital of this corner of the galaxy, uh, graduate students doing their research on primitive societies, and all, all kinds of things. But, Let's make one assumption about every advanced civilization. The one I think is reasonable is that every civilization is concerned about its own survival and security. Because if Mm -hmm. they're not, they don't last very long. That being the case, you have to keep tabs on the primitives in the neighborhood, but only close tabs. And those primitives will show signs of being able to bother you. At the end of World War II, there were three signs that any visiting alien would recognize meant that Earthlings soon, meaning less than 100 years, which is nothing on the cosmic scale, time scale, soon we idiots would be going out there. I, I think from their viewpoint, we're clearly a primitive society whose major activity is tribal warfare. I mean, look around. Like I said, we killed 50 million of our own kind. We destroyed yeah. 1,700 cities. How else can you describe that? But the three signs of growing technology, if you will, nuclear weapons, V-2 rockets, which were being used for killing, of course, and powerful radar, which didn't exist before World War II, but is the first step in the electronics revolution, if you will. You put them all together, and they say, soon these idiots will be out bothering us, taking their brand of friendship, which everybody else recognizes is hostility. <laughs> now, the three signs, those three signs, there was only one place in the world in July 1947 where you could study all three of them. And that was southeastern New Mexico, which is where Roswell is. That's where the first atom bomb was tested, Trinity site, on the grounds of the White Sands Missile Range which is where we were firing the captured German V-2s, and where we had our best radar. Well, we had our best radar there because sometimes the rockets went south instead of north. Very embarrassing, incidentally, and the Mexicans weren't very happy about that. But at least we didn't have bombs at the top of the rockets. Mm -hmm. 
So, and I, I, I'll admit, I had a Russian, uh, an English astronomer uh, on a television say, well, they could have gone to the Soviet Union. And I had to say, sorry, they didn't test their first A-bomb until August 1949. Uh, he had previously said something really bright. Why would anybody have gone to New Mexico? Well, it's there is sand. And I asked if he'd ever been there. No. You don't know two of the three nuclear weapons labs in the United States are there? that the biggest employer in the state was Kirtland Air Force Base, that Roswell was the home of the only atomic bombing group in the world. And, yeah. you know, he knew, he knew nothing. But one of the problems in ufology is the nasty, noisy negativists, as I call them when I'm being polite, follow four basic rules. Don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. What the public doesn't know, I'm not going to tell them. If you can't okay. attack the data, attack the people. It's easier. And do your research <laughs> by proclamation because investigation is too much trouble and nobody will know the difference anyway. And I've taken <laughs> these guys on on radio, and I take on the the SETI cultists, as I call them. You know, SETI is silly effort to investigate, S-E-T-I. Uh, and, you know, they they would have you believe that there is no interstellar travel out there Nobody much more advanced than we are, that in our huge galaxy there might be as many as 8,000 planets where somebody could communicate with us using antique technology, of course, because we've only had radio, heck of a place to say this on a radio program, we've only had radio for 110 years, 111 now, actually. Um, well, what if? what are your thoughts on... Why would they um, use Say that again. On the fact that how far technology we have been advanced just since the, since the era of the crash in Roswell. I mean, it's like the fastest booming 50, 60 years that I think we've had ever, right? As far as the tech, oh, technology. Oh, there's no question about that. One of the reasons for that, though, is that we've spent enormous amounts of money. Uh, when I was working on nuclear airplanes for General Electric in 1958, uh, we had 3,500 employees in Cincinnati. That year we spent $100 million. So incidentally, 1,100 of those 3,500 were engineers and scientists. $100 million is a lot of money in 1958. Yeah, I'm not kidding. We spend more money, I, I checked a few years ago, just the budgets for the three nuclear weapons labs together were more than the National Science Foundation was spending on all its research and development. And there are plenty of other classified programs out there. Uh, the Stealth Fighter was done at a cost of only $10 billion in secret. That's not <laughs> for professors and 20 grad students, believe me. It is. Mm. You know, interest is out there. I'm, I'm not bragging. Uh, you know, I'm just saying that I've never... Now I've spoken in 18 countries and all, oh, St. John's, Newfoundland. How could I leave that out? That's my 10th wow. Canadian province, so that's all of them. And I've spoken in all 50 states. And I say mm -hmm. this to encourage people to realize that if they're interested, they're not alone. There are a lot of people who are interested. And they will turn out for lectures if they think it's safe. But they won't get too much direction. Wow. And so... Come on out, folks, www.stantonfriedman.com. All right, uh, great. Well, There's a lot of good stuff going been, on. Yeah, it sounds like getting out. I will post it on our Facebook, and 
our page as well. It has been a pleasure. We feel so lucky that you accepted to be here with us tonight in this humble little internet radio. And we yes, are very sir. happy to so be thankful. We'd love to have you back on too, you know, in the future. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thanks Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Martha Man? Yes. It was a pleasure. Good job with this interview. This was a really yeah, exciting you. show. Thank you, information. I know and um maybe we'll get him again next time when he's I have so many more questions and this subject I'm sweating and I have so many more questions in my head. In an hour wasn't enough. But anyway, it's time to go. But thank you very much for joining us tonight. So, so, I'm so, so thankful to Mr. Friedman. Martha Man, you have a wonderful night, and we'll see you again next time. I gotcha. Good night, everyone. Good night. This was Vera Normal. Oh, yeah, that's it for tonight. The Vera Normal Show. Little Midge, Martha Man, Vera Martinez, we're out.